Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This week, we're going back to Brexit, but specifically to Brexit and Scottish independence. How are these two huge stories going to interact over the coming year? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's a great pleasure to welcome back Helen Thompson and Anne Menon, who's the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, and Kenneth Armstrong, who is Professor of European Law here in Cambridge. So when we schedule these things, we always think, well, by the time we do this, we'll know what the deal is. And then we never do, uh, but we're going to have to guess where we think it's going. So let's just do that first, and then we'll get on to the, the other stuff. Kenneth, you want to say where you think we are? How close are we? to actually knowing the shape of this bloody deal or non-deal? Well, I'm still pretty sure that there will be a deal and I think it has to be coming really very, very soon. It's The parameters of all of this haven't really changed. Everybody knows what it is that's still to be resolved and that's about putting numbers on things or time periods on things. I suspect we will know within even the, the next week whether there, there will be a deal and I think there will be one. But just checking, not before this podcast goes out tomorrow. Uh, who knows, but I doubt it. <laughs> okay, good. And Anne, where, where are you on, on deal, no deal, definite deal? I think at this point, you're probably better off asking an astrologer than a political scientist whether or not there's going to be a deal. I mean, it's it strikes me that the negotiation that matters is going on in the Prime Minister's head rather than in a room with David Frost and Michel Barnier, because... We know what a deal will look like, more or less. We know the concessions that both sides would have to make, more or less. What we don't know is whether either side is willing to make those concessions at the moment. And that, I mean, toss a coin. I'm not as confident as I was. I don't think I'm as confident as Kenneth sounds that there'll be a deal. One of the things that concerns me is that the Prime Minister is fighting on several different fronts at the moment, but is fighting largely the same people. That is to say that the people who kicked up most fuss in the vote yesterday about lockdown are precisely, or have amongst them, precisely the kinds of people who will not be happy of what they see as a betrayal over Brexit. And that makes me worry a little bit that a Prime Minister who is known to think very much in the short term might actually think it's not worth the hassle to irritate that same bunch of people again. And just seeing it, as we always need to try and do from the other side, from the European side, or the let's call it the EU side, you've seen a lot of these. There is that familiar brinkmanship, wait to the last minute, and then suddenly something emerges, feel to this. Is there any reason on the other side to think that it's different? Because Okay, there's the battle going on in the Prime Minister's head, but there is also the question about at what point, because it feels like the EU never quite walks away, at what point might they walk away? 
I don't think the EU ever walks away, but neither does the EU generally concede points of principle in this kind of negotiation. And remember, Michel Barnier is is the sort of soft point of the EU position. We get this wrong over and over and over again. Uh, And there are several member states sounding even more hawkish at the moment. So, I mean, one of the considerations has got to be if the talks collapse, and we've heard various Conservative MPs saying that's fine, we'll get a deal in March. The problem, of course, will be that the deal in March will be on precisely the same terms as far as the EU is concerned as those that they're offering now. So, I mean, the, the one structural difference it's worth stressing between this and all those other negotiations that apparently go to the 11th hour is that in all those negotiations, the default position is the status quo ante. That is to say, if you don't get an agreement, you end up where you started from. This, of course, is fundamentally different. If we don't get an agreement, we end up in a very, very different place to where we started from. Helen, what, what, where are you you know, split the difference between Kenneth and Anand? No, I'm more in sort of in, in Anand's position. I think that's there's an obvious possibility that there will be a deal, an agreement, but there's an seems to me a, an obvious possibility that there won't be either. And I'll be inclined on the balance of probabilities towards there being one, just because in that's the sort of the easier state of affairs. And often, as Alan says, these things go to the brink and then people pull back from them. But I do think that there are two contexts in which these negotiations are going on. One is on the British side, as Anon said, and I would go a little bit further than saying that it's simply a matter of debate in the Prime Minister's head. I mean, I think that what we're seeing over the last few weeks in particular is the space to the Conservative Party's right. I mean, left right's a little bit too simplistic about this, but let's just say a space that will get presented as being to the Conservatives' right, so some version of Nigel Farage, that space opening back up again, it's been closed down twice. It was first closed down by the referendum result and then it was closed down by the 2019 Conservative majority um, victory. But the debates about lockdown have really reopened it in a different way than we could possibly have expected when we were talking about the situation with Brexit after the general election. On the other side, I think that we have to remember that there's something from the EU's point of view, particularly or more exactly from the Eurozone's point of view, that's more consequential in the long term going on at the moment in terms of negotiations, and that is trying to rescue the EU recovery fund from the impasse it is in over the rule of law issue in relation to Hungary and Poland. So the ways in which that plays out, and I think will have consequences because it creates the incentive for people for some member states to try to, and particularly I think perhaps for for Macron, to try to use Brexit as an issue to get what he's perhaps more interested in on the EU recovery side. So I think there's a lot of different things in play. And on the British side, I would say the thing that pulls in the opposite direction is the thing that we're going to go on to talk about, which is the union, which is obviously in a much more precarious position in terms of immediate support for Scottish independence than was the case when these negotiations began. We are about to come on to Scotland, but I mean, I think it is really, and we we can't do it now. I think the the new guise in which Nigel Farage has sort of reemerged. There is something very interesting about it. It's not just lockdown politics. He's also trying to position himself for the the looming fight over environmental politics, and particularly he's sort of now he's the motorist friend. He's the anti-cycle lane. 
politician. And these things are going to intersect in some way that I think if I was a conservative politician, I would be worried about. But there's also COVID. And I mean, one thing that is different now than, say, even six weeks ago or two months ago, is it is possible to envisage in March or April or May, not a return to normal, but assuming all the news about the vaccines and the way that the markets have priced that news is roughly right, at least some optimism about the economy. There are huge long-term issues, but the thought that it won't be in March, April, that we, we will be in the worst of this, we will be past the worst of this. Does that on either side affect how they think about it? Because there was a way this might have come out even a couple of months ago, where the spring still looked profoundly uncertain and unsettling. And there has been a mindset shift, I think, that sort of April, I think even in the Prime Minister's mind, April is a sort of fresh start. Do you think that has changed anything about the thought about what might happen in these negotiations? I slightly question your premise there, David, in the sense that I sort of buy the argument about public health, but I just think our world changes profoundly if we're dealing with two to three million unemployed. Mm. Uh, that it is yeah. too easy to think, okay, we will be out of the crisis and we might be emerging from the public health crisis. But I think at that point, we will be neck deep in an economic crisis that it seems to me we haven't been talking about enough or anticipating sufficiently, because that will sweep all else before it, because we all know how politically salient unemployment is in, in a way that, you know, aggregate GDP figures aren't. And I just think it, politics will be dominated by this, by the time we're emerging from the real public health crisis. And Helen, it's the point that you've made a lot. I mean, <laughs> in a sense, we are back in the 1980s if it's unemployment plus motoring, as uh, what politics becomes about. I think that there's, Anon's point is, is absolutely right in the sense is, is that we're, we're going to go deeper into economic crisis, particularly because the support systems that have been put in place are going to be withdrawn. I mean, there's a question about at what speed that they are going to be withdrawn. And that, that means that unemployment is certainly going to be significantly higher. And I think that this does play in then to this issue of like, well, what's the space from which the Conservatives are going to be attacked that's not either Labour attacking them or the SNP attacking them? And the more that unemployment rises, the more that is going to be a backlash against the lockdown, the, the, the lockdowns that have been in place. And, and that is going to be um, tricky for the Conservatives because you can already see the amount of discontent that there is on the parliamentary um, backbenches. And this is where I think then the environmental issue is going to come into play. You can see this really, I think, pretty evidently already. And that is is that the the way in which the recovery is going to be not only presented but driven is via climate politics in terms of the necessity of building up renewable energy. And, and that in itself is a is a good thing, but it is going to have consequences and it is not difficult to see how you have a, a line of attack on the Conservatives from a Farage-like position. It doesn't even have to be from Farage himself. It can be within the Conservative Party that essentially ties together an attack on the government for having imposed lockdown as hard as it did, for making too many concessions to the EU, if that's t- what it turns out to be the case of being too concerned about an energy transition and not enough concern about immediate jobs. And conceivably, if we go in this direction too, being too concerned about making concessions to Scotland and not defending English interests in the Union, that's a pretty lethal attack to be delivered against the government. And I think they they will want to defend themselves against um, against that attack. 
So, Kenneth, that then does bring us to the, the intersection between Scotland and possibly a referendum on Scottish independence and what's going on in the Brexit negotiations. So how do you see it? So Nicola Sturgeon this this past week has been laying out a position. It's, she's not, I don't think, saying anything particularly new, though one of the new things relative to a year ago is to also highlight, as she sees it, the, the difference in the Scottish approach to the pandemic, to the incompetence of the Westminster government. Where do you think we are in the intersection between Brexit and Scottish independence? You would kind of expect that at this stage, the the SNP and, and Nicola Sturgeon as its leader would be, would be feeling very tired in Scottish politics. They feel like they've been the dominant force. In fact, I think Alex Massey, the Scotland editor of The Spectator, was writing this week about how we should be feeling about the SNP the same way as we felt about Labour in Scotland as that kind of dominant force that got tired and then and then replaced. But, you know, we see that the SNP is still doing doing pretty well. I mean, the, the latest YouGov poll that I saw puts voting intentions at the, the next parliamentary elections in May with the, the SNP over about 56%. And, you know, Conservatives down about 20, Labour down about 15 or so. So the SNP is doing surprisingly well, you would think, given everything and given the the pandemic and what's happened in Scotland as well as as in other parts of the UK. So the SNP appear to be doing well, and that then gives, no doubt, Nicola Sturgeon some comfort in thinking that when she goes into the next uh, elections in May, that she can then seek a mandate for another referendum, that that will be something which she will then try and implement if, as the polls suggest, she, she wins a majority. Is it plausibly, though, a mandate? I mean, there's always this question. We've had general elections. I mean, the, the elections in Scotland for the Scottish Parliament, the elections for the UK Parliament in 2017 were presented as a, a Brexit election, a, a mandate election. But elections, when you vote for a party, I know it'll be in their manifesto and it will be drummed consistently as you know, a vote for the SNP is a vote for another independence referendum. But it's you know it's not formally it's not strictly true, is it? What will be interesting, I think, this time round is the how they go about the referendum. Back in 2014, the referendum was based on the Edinburgh Agreement, and that was an agreement between Westminster and the, the, the Scottish government to hold a referendum by by the consent of both governments. The, the Scottish government still want to have a referendum by illegal means, but what they're now floating is the possibility of the Scottish Parliament legislating for such a referendum, even without the so-called Section 30 order that would give consent from, from the UK. So I think what's interesting about the uh, election then is that whether the manifesto includes a specific pledge to legislate for a referendum, even without the, the Section 30 order. And then how do you see it? And particularly, how do you see it? Because it, you know, it's no coincidence that Nicola Sturgeon has been pushing this case as we come up to the possibility of a Brexit deal or indeed no deal. And these two things, no question through next year, through the spring up to that election, are going to be absolutely central. Whatever fallout there is from what happens in relation to the EU is going to be not maybe the the key plank, but one of the key planks in the SNP case for Scottish independence. 
Absolutely. And I think the flip side of that is for people like Michael Gove in particular, Scotland is one of the key reasons why it is imperative to get a deal rather than to leave transition with no deal. Because the logic for people like Michael Gove, I think, is we show a degree of competence by getting a deal that and it'll be too easy to be attacked on this sort of Starmer attack line for lack of competence without a deal. And if we manage to claw back some of the fishing quota, that's actually something that you can take to Scottish coastal communities and say, we've achieved what you know a Scottish government never could because a Scottish government is committed to taking you back into the CFP. Is that, is that enough? I mean, it's, no, it's a fairly thin prospectus to defend it's, it's far um, enough, the union. But in a time of famine, you, you learn to appreciate scraps. And, there, you know, one of the striking things about Scotland is not just how ineffective the messages about the union have been, but I think, and possibly even more importantly, how ineffective the messengers are. One of the things that strikes me looking at Scotland is who who opposes Nicola Sturgeon has the profile and the respect and the credibility to front up an anti-independence campaign. And whenever I think about it, the answer I come to seems to be no one, really. I think that Anon's absolutely right, that if you look at it from the point of view um, of the, the strongest unionists in the in the cabinet and Michael Gover in particular, there are you know very substantial risks to not being able to to reach an agreement with the with the European um, Union. I think the difficulty though is is that this then interacts with the problem that we were you know discussing earlier that in order to save the union, it can't for this government be a, a trade agreement with the European Union at any cost. Even if it's possible to get that through the House of Commons on Labour abstentions, which obviously would be a, um, a possibility where numbers is concerned, is they can't have a, a massive backbench rebellion over Brexit trade agreement. So it still has, from the point of view of the government, to be something that can be presented as being Brexit, which means an actual separation from the EU's legal order. So it's not simply a question, I think, that the Scottish position can be strengthened and I agree we're only talking about relative strengthening in the short term here by saying let's pursue an agreement at any costs. I think the issue about whether Nicola Sturgeon is willing to go down the route of having what would essentially be an illegal referendum or one that's not authorised under the reserve powers at Westminster I think that that in one sense it's a quite risky strategy from her point of view it undermines the idea that actually that Scotland is already had an acknowledged right to self-determination within the union. And in some sense, I think it's more convenient for the SNP if the grievance of Westminster not allowing the referendum is there to exploit rather than having to go down the road of doing it in this um, unauthorised way. And I think that we, we do have to you know like bear in mind that from the point of view of the SNP leadership, that in some sense they are being pushed to a position uh, about moving more hastily to a referendum that might not actually have been of their own choosing. Remember that Nicola Sturgeon's immediate reaction to the referendum back in June 2016 was to say immediately that Scotland wanted a, another referendum. And then she really pulled away from that position even before the 2017 general election. It became more a line of argument about a referendum being necessary to re-legitimate Scotland's place in a post-Brexit UK union, that 
the SNP leadership is being pushed further on the currency question towards Scotland having its own currency than it itself is comfortable with. And I do think when we're talking about Scottish independence, we need to draw a distinction between the undoubted support for it in terms of looking at opinion polls over the last, well, really since the beginning of this year, and whether there is a coherent independent project that the SNP can offer to voters. And I would say that they still haven't resolved the currency question. And without resolving the currency question, they get into an EU question. And you get into the possibility that even if you get into the European Union, you're committed to joining the Eurozone and you've established a Scottish currency in the first instance that would allow you then to join the exchange rate mechanism too, so that you can join the the Euro. You're back to the question of there being a need for an English-Scottish border because of England being in, or the rest of the United Kingdom, I should say, being in the um, single market and Scotland not. So there are still really big impediments, I think, to the Scottish independent project. That doesn't change the fact that lots of more people are in favour of it, but the way in which the discongruence in some sense between the growing support for Scottish independence and the diminishing practical possibility for it under the conditions of Brexit hasn't worked itself out yet. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On that last point of Helen's, so, so say we get a deal, and even if it's a deal that everyone hates, it's a deal. At that point, it is then possible, at least, and it, there may not be the politicians to do this with the statute to do this, to put the argument back to the SNP, which is, okay, now this is the new arrangement. We at least have something now. What's your plan? If Scotland is independence, what then is your plan? What is the relationship between an independent Scotland and, on the one hand, the European Union, and on the other hand, the rest of the UK, which is not in the European Union. And at that point, skillfully done, it could be possible to put pressure on the SNP because, as Helen says, it's not clear that the SNP has an answer. Um, I think the SNP does have an answer to that, and that is to say that the deal which will be done is still a free trade agreement and it is a deal which takes the UK or most of the UK out of the EU's single market. And I think the SNP's response to that is that Scotland in the single market by some means is nonetheless still the way forward. Now, that leaves an option open, which is to say that access to the single market could come through EU membership, but it could also come through membership of the European Free Trade Association and then accessing the single market through the European Economic Area. So I think that option of non-EU membership is perhaps more on the table than it was back in 2014. And just to go back to Helen's point about the legality of a referendum, the the point that the Scottish SNP are are making is that the legality of that mechanism has not been tested in the courts. And while the UK uh, may argue that there is a strong reserve power on the constitution, uh, an advisory referendum held 
by the Scottish Parliament could nonetheless be lawful. Now, that would, of course, have to be tested, I think, before the, the UK Supreme Court. So I don't think we can rush to saying that it would be an illegal referendum. Its legality is yet to be determined. And do you think an SNP position that says we may have to accept that Scotland, an independent Scotland, will be outside the European Union, as it were, we may have to accept at some level that Brexit is a fact, even for Scotland, given the SNP has also been trying to say that Scotland cannot be dragged into Brexit against its will and using the arguments around trade and the single market as the way to kind of split that difference. Is that sustainable for the SNP? That sounds like a very ropey position for the SNP to adopt, it seems to me, simply because membership has been such a a key element of the independence uh, offer. And I do think, in a sense, that the detail about that relationship is the unionists' trump card. And in particular, for me, the issue of, well, there's the issue of currency, as Helen mentioned, but there's also the issue of the border. One of the great pleasures of life as a political scientist at the moment is watching people deploy precisely the opposite argument to the one they used for the last debate, for the next debate. And you see a bit of this now with nationalists in Scotland arguing that we might be able to use technology or that the EU won't impose a border between Scotland and England in the event that Scotland join the EU. It's a bit like watching hardcore Brexiters argue about the need for serious and credible impact assessments on the economic impacts of the pandemic. Uh, What goes around comes around in politics remarkably quickly these days. But I still am yet to hear a credible answer that doesn't imply magical thinking about the EU giving the same kind of special treatment to Scotland as they gave to Northern Ireland, which, let's be clear, they simply will not, that deals with that border question. I think that will be absolutely fundamental. On on the referendum itself, so say the SNP confronts in Westminster a government that simply refuses to budge and says that there is no possibility, certainly in this Westminster Parliament, of an agreement to hold another independence referendum. And Nicola Sturgeon has said that she thinks that if she wins a majority in the Scottish Parliament, that will be a mandate to hold another independence referendum relatively early in the term of the Scottish Parliament. So these two things collide. At that point, the options narrow. And if that referendum is going to be held, it will have to be held against the will of the Westminster government. So there are a set of legal questions about that, as Kenneth was saying, that will then go eventually to the Supreme Court. And maybe we should talk about, and Kenneth, you can tell us on on what issues that would be judged. But it seems to me there's also a political risk, and this touches on the Catalonia question. If you hold a referendum that is not agreed by all parties, one risk is that the other side boycott it. So what happens if you have a Scottish independence referendum that is won overwhelmingly in favour of independence, but on a relatively or indeed very low turnout because unionists refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of the referendum and simply don't vote? What happens then? I mean, this is obviously why having a an agreed referendum on the model of 2014 was undoubtedly the, the, the best way forward, because it's also then about your international recognition on the world stage. You know, there is no way that the, the European Union would have entertained 
an independent Scotland seeking EU membership on the back of an illegal referendum. It just wouldn't happen. So the question is, in the, in the UK's great setup, what constitutes illegal referendum is an alternative if it is the case that Westminster does refuse to, to give consent. And that's why we have the alternative view being put forward that the Scottish Parliament could, could legislate for what is an so-called advisory referendum. But of course, in our setup, all referendums are advisory. But as we saw with the 2016 referendum, they do actually have real world consequences. So it's not obvious that that argument that it's simply an advisory referendum really does, does cut it. The Supreme Court is interesting because, of course, it's already had to deal with quite a number of issues over the last few years, including back when the Scottish government wanted to legislate for its own continuity bill to allow Scots law to align with the EU law. And actually, when the UK government tried to run arguments about the, the wide sweep of its reserve powers on the international stage, the Supreme Court was actually much, much more cautious about that. And so the question becomes now whether a reference to the Supreme Court on, on how broad the question of the constitution, the reservation of the constitution was, whether they would interpret that as narrowly or as broadly as it, as it did on, in the previous continuity bill case. It's a very, very open question and it would be, and it would be very risky and I, I don't think it's, it would be a strategy that would be a very comfortable one for the Scottish government to take for the reasons you give that it could end up with the conclusion by the Supreme Court that this would not be a lawful referendum. And and then the question is, well, where do you go from there? There is. Can I just come in very quickly and say that there's a slight political element to this as well, in the sense that there are those in London who, whilst they acknowledge the fact that you might sort of get a pressure cooker effect by refusing a referendum in the event of a clear SNP majority next May, are also kind of hoping that the SNP starts to tear itself apart because the arguments between those who are slightly frustrated with what they see as the slow pace at which Nicola Sturgeon is taking this forward are going to get even more exercised in the event that you have an SNP majority coming out of May. The British government has says no, and the Scottish government is reluctant to act. So there are those who are hoping that some of those divisions in the SNP can be brought out into the open as the only silver lining of a case where the SNP do very well in May. I think in the end, this is a it is a political question and it's not a legal question. And uh, in this sense, is that they it's all in, are heaven, ultimately. In, yeah, in, okay. in everybody's interest, both in Scotland and um, in Westminster, to hold on to the idea that this is a voluntary union and that it's not one that is being that, that Scotland is being kept in um, by coercion. And in the end, using the courts to to try to stop that 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 is what that will look like. So that is disadvantageous from the point of view of unionists as well as all the risks that, as Kenneth has said, that the SNP takes by trying to run this as a legal strategy through the, the Supreme Court. I think in the end, it's a question of time. But in the end, there will be another referendum. The question is, is when it will come and whether it will come at a timing that is convenient to the SNP or whether it's coming at a time that is more convenient to whoever's in power at Westminster and I think from the point of view of this Conservative government, I think there are particular problems in having a referendum whilst Boris Johnson is the Prime Minister. Now, if he's going to carry on for the entirety of the, the term, however long that lasts with the Fixed-Term Parliament Act about to go, is obviously a, a question. But I, I think that the likelihood is that there will be a referendum in the end, but the hope in, in Westminster will be that it can be pushed into 
being a few years down the road rather than being at some time in 2021 or indeed early 22. It's a, a notable feature of the current state of British politics that we've managed to have this conversation and we have not, I think, mentioned the Labour Party once, except briefly at the beginning, talking about you know, that the SNP ought to be going the way of Labour, having been in power for too long and got tired, and yet <clears throat> there they are polling above 50%. But you know, th- these are real dilemmas for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party too. There's a question about how he may vote or how he may whip his MPs to vote if a, a deal does come back from the Brexit negotiations. There is the question about how Labour approaches the demand for an independence referendum. And there is the fundamental electoral arithmetic that remains true, which is Labour, absent any Westminster seats from Scotland, is going to find it very, very hard to win another election. Not impossible by any means, but hard. Scotland still really matters for Labour. And then which do you think is the most acute dilemma that Starmer is facing? And presumably the immediate one is what he does on a parliamentary vote about a Brexit deal. Yeah, that is the most immediate one. And there is no easy way out for Starmer on that because the movement, the party are profoundly divided about Brexit. And I think what Starmer has shown to date is an ability to take things one step at a time. That is to say, focus on the next immediate problem and go from there, which isn't to say they're not thinking about Scotland. But I think all the attention of the front bench team at the moment is focused on A, the economics of COVID, where Annalisa Dodds is seen as doing quite a good job, but B, this impending vote on Brexit. And the, the, the second element, I think, that is exercising the Labour Party about Brexit is not simply how you vote, but because they have a bit of a dilemma in the event of a deal. Because on the one hand, we can easily imagine Boris Johnson signing a deal and claiming that he's pulled off some miracle against all the odds again, because it's what he claimed last year. And yet, those who know anything about the deal will realise that its implications for the British economy will be more severe over the medium term than those of COVID. So Labour need to find a way on the one hand of not looking like they regret Brexit, but on the other hand, being able to say, let's just bear in mind that this deal is going to cost us jobs and growth. And I think that, you know, there's two very hard circles to square there for Keir Starmer before he even starts to think about Scotland. And also what makes it particularly hard is they have to somehow disaggregate the argument saying the government's incompetence over COVID is costing us jobs and growth. And this deal the government has just brought back from Brexit is costing us jobs and growth. And these two things are not the same thing because there is still that real possibility that somehow COVID washes away that difference. Absolutely. And I think the problem with Brexit for the Labour Party is whilst those economic impacts are going to be severe, they are going to be relatively subtle and medium to long term in nature. So it's far, far harder to draw that sort of line of causality or line of blame between actions the government took and economic outcomes. But it still strikes me that ultimately, the major economic event of this parliament is going to be Brexit and not COVID or it'll certainly be a close run thing. So they need to come up with some kind of narrative. And Kenneth, do you think they have a dilemma also? I mean, I think it's very difficult to be the Labour leader at the moment in some respects, which is that pushing the case on the government's incompetence, the Westminster government's incompetence in its handling of the pandemic does at least implicitly leave the door open for the, the Sturgeon case, which is that the Scottish government, the SNP, has done better. I mean, Labour can attack them both and say that they both in different ways been incompetent. But the focus on Boris Johnson's incompetence is at least an implicit endorsement of one strand of Sturgeon's argument for Scotland and Scottish independence. 
In a sense, I think that's right, but I do think that where the vote in Scotland does start to soften would be around if the UK Labour Party under Keir Starmer or some other leader could actually show itself to be a credible government in waiting for for the UK. And that's where I think you would start to peel off some votes from the SNP in Scotland. I mean, I think it's very, very interesting that we've talked about, you know, the the figure of Boris Johnson as as a kind of polarising figure. Who'd be the alternative figures in Scottish politics that would be, you know, stand uh, as an alternative to Nicola Sturgeon? And they're, they're absent, you know, Nicola Sturgeon will be going into the, the May elections, not facing Ruth Davison, who had a very high profile, had brought the Scottish Conservatives back in Scotland. The Scottish Conservatives have, have had a leadership problem. Uh, they've got a new leader, but who's not in Holyrood. There is no obvious strong Labour figure in, in Scotland. So the Labour figure nationally then starts to really, really matter. And therefore, Keir Starmer showing an ability for a Labour government to be to be more competent does start to then, at least to some extent, reinforce the idea that the union might still be something worth investing in, even for Scottish voters. I'm not sure, that though, that Labour's in a very good position to make these competence lines of attacks, given the, the positions that it's taken. If you take the issue of Brexit, it's not that Keir Starmer opposed extending the transition when that was the issue back in May, June. It's not that he opposes, he and the, the shadow cabinet, as a collective position anyway, opposed pursuing a minimal free trade agreement with the EU and nothing else. If it turns out that there's no deal, are they going to, are they going to want to, and it comes down to the principle of the relationship between the EU's legal system and, and the UK's legal system, are they going to say that actually that they think that the UK's legal system should be subordinated to the EU's legal system? If you look at then the, the COVID issue, Starmer was calling for a national um, lockdown or under another name, a circuit breaker. I think he, he was using that term before that's where Johnson um, went. The strongest critique, I think, that can be made from the Labour's position about the COVID issue is, is that the economic decision making and the health decision making have not been joined up with each other. And I think that is a, a fruitful line of attack, but I don't think it's probably strong enough really to change the balance of electoral opinion in the United Kingdom as a whole over the next six months or so. And then we get on to the, the Scottish question, which you know at its heart is actually about the crisis of the Labour Party. And it's about the collapse of Labour in Scotland. Labour, Labour's strength in Scotland is the thing that bound the union together in political terms. And it's disappeared. It disappeared in, in 2011 and it hasn't come back. And because it hasn't come back in Scotland, it makes it very difficult for any party other than the Conservatives to be the dominant party at Westminster, particularly on the conditions of asymmetrical devolution. So the Labour Party, in its absence, is actually crucial to the the whole crisis of the union. And it it is also true, we haven't talked about Wales either. In Wales, just on the politics of COVID, there was a circuit breaker. And for a while, it looked like that move was a sensible one that preempted some of what had to happen in the rest of England. And then it now looks like further action is going to be have to be taken by Mark Drayford and the things are out of sync again. I mean, we do have, I mean, there is a part of the UK which is under a form of Labour government control. 
And these things are all going to intersect with each other. We've got Christmas coming up, or there's a sort of agreement between the different parts, the different jurisdictions of the UK about how we're going to deal with COVID over Christmas. But this is going to play on into the new year, and it is going to intersect with whatever comes out of the Brexit negotiations simply around this issue of competence. So just to finish with this question, I mean, we talked about it a while back, but on the issue of competence, if, if there weren't to be a deal, just, you know, if that, that, that remains a possibility, if there weren't to be a deal, given everything else that's going on, and given the likely consequences of that in the short term, never mind in the medium term, how much pressure, I mean, just how dangerous is that for this government on the question of competence? How does it look now, do you think? I mean, is it something that they really should do everything in their power still to rule out? I think I go back to where I started, which is I do think that there will be a deal. And I think the reason for that is there is just so much pressure on this government to hold true to what it said at the beginning of the year, which is we have an oven ready deal ready to go. And if that is not true, that is going to make the prime minister look pretty, pretty stupid. And this government has done a lot by way of announcing things as realities and then having to backfill. And I think the, the government has a very strong incentive to try to, to reach an agreement quickly and then backfill the explanation of why this is a why this is a good deal. So I still strongly believe that that is the most likely outcome. Just on that though, Kenneth, when he was talking, as I recall, about the oven ready deal, he was talking about the withdrawal agreement rather than talking, I mean he couldn't possibly, even by Boris Johnson's hyperbole, be talking about the trade agreement. I mean, I think that they do have a strong incentive to reach a deal, not least because of the the Scottish question, but I don't think that that means that they can agree to anything that the European Union is proposing. And that if there is going to be an agreement, there will have to be movement on both sides, not just on the British side. On on the deal, I think there's 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 an interesting dynamic that sort of kicked off a few weeks ago when Michael Gove appeared in the House of Commons and appeared actually a little bit panicked by the lack of business preparation he came up with some remarkable statistic about what a huge number of businesses were convinced the transition would be extended. And this was in November when, of course, transition couldn't be extended. And I think what that did was it prompted some people at the heart of government to think, hang on, if you're genuinely saying that there is going to be a significant amount of disruption in the event of a deal, we will own that disruption because we'll sign a deal. We'll say it's a great deal. Then we'll get disruption. The buck will stop with us. If that's the case, doesn't it make more sense to have the slightly larger, in their view, disruption that comes from no deal? Because at least that way around, we can blame the French and fish. Uh, and politically, therefore, it covers us against charges of Brexit being disruptive and hitting the economy at a time when we can least afford it. It also reignites that Brexit culture war on the back of which we rode to power last December. And I'm not saying that logic is foolproof, far from it, not least because the pro-leave voters who voted Conservative last year weren't all in favour of no deal, and some of them are going to get very badly hit in the event of no deal. But I am still thinking that there, there are still those in government who think that politically given the fact that the only deal on offer is a thin one, there might be an advantage, might be an advantage to going for no deal. I'm tempted to think that we should call this episode Blame the French and Fish. I like that as a tagline, but we won't. <laughs> I think we'll call it something more boring than that. 
So as always, we're going to come back to all of these questions. We're going to be talking over the next couple of weeks and thinking about the year ahead in relation to the EU and not just Brexit, but also the issues that Helen mentioned, the the rule of law fight, but also some of the economic questions. And we're going to go back to talking to Lucia Rubinelli about what's going on in Italy and Italian politics, which tends to be our bellwether for these questions. We're also going to be talking in much more detail about prospects for the Labour Party. And next year, we are going to be doing much more on the future and the possible breakup of the union and looking at the long history and the current politics of the relations between the nations of the UK. We will talk more about Wales. We will talk also about Ireland and Northern Ireland. We'll talk about Scotland. We'll talk about England. That's all for next year. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Let me just confess first that my computer just crashed. My computer crashed at the point where Helen said discongruous. And I was wondering whether that's a word or not. So I missed... You missed all the... Well, go and jump in and assume what we said. I missed everything that Kenneth said. And then are you back? I am back. Sorry about that. Do you want to have the last word? Go on. Yeah. Say anything you like about anything. <laughs> you know I'll talk about football then, David. So don't <laughs> go on, man. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.